Japan's a unique and fascinating place with a rich culture that truly must be appreciated. And it also has some of the craziest urban legends in the world. Sit back today and let's take a break from baby killers and other murderers. And instead, let's just focus on seven urban legends from Japan for fun. Podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of Killing Missing Hidden. Arguably the one that should have never been recorded, as I will explain in a moment. I'm Brad, your favorite host of this podcast. Thank you for dropping in. All right, so a quick story I have to share. This past week, I've been busy, like insanely busy. I mean, like as a family, we ate dinner at 10 p.m. one evening on a school night. Normal people don't do that. We've dealt with medical procedures and injuries and late nights and more sports than I ever care to see again in my life and just all sorts of other nonsense. I actually took time off from work this past week just to get some sleep. That's how bad it's been. Needless to say, I have not spent a ton of time on this week's episode. But here I am recording. So what are you getting? A bunch of garbage thrown in your ears? Well, I mean, as usual, yeah. But I'm relying on a crutch for this episode. I recently read the book Toshi Den, Volume 1 by Tara Devlin. It's a book that focuses on nothing but Japanese urban legends. She's got a series of them. They have spooky ones. They have funny ones. They have miscellanea mixed in it's so it's with full credit to tara and her work that i'm able to bring this episode to y'all and i'm only able to record it at all because all the sports that were planned for monday night were canceled due to thunderstorms thank goodness so the book again really well done so good that I'm probably going to end up buying the other volumes. I'd love for you to check it out, too. Again, Toshi's Den by Tara Devlin. You can find it on Amazon, as you can everything else. I really enjoyed it. The first volume that I read had somewhere between 60 and 70 legends. But it's not just the legends. It has a bunch of uh, research behind it and variations on the legend. It's almost like uh, an encyclopedia, in a way. So if you dig things like this, buy the book. If you dig things like this and you don't want a spare change, let me know. Maybe your old buddy Brad will do a giveaway or something. Okay, enough about me and my terrible week and, and this book. Let's just jump right in and see what we can piece together here, okay? We will begin with a sporting urban legend that mixes baseball with KFC. What, you were expecting, like, all monsters and ghosts? You should certainly know me better than that by now. So we go back in time to 1985. The Hanshin Tigers won the Japanese Championship Series for the first time in 21 years. This caused their supporters to go mad with joy. I guess the blunt way would say that is they more or less rioted. In the celebration slash melee, a statute of Colonel Sanders himself 
was taken from the front of a local KFC and paraded around town with the celebrators. Why on earth would they pick on the old colonel, you ask? Well, many fans thought that the fried chicken king strongly resembled American baseball player Randy Bass, who was playing for the Tigers. Now, Bass was a good player. Well, actually, he won the league MVP that season. In fact, he's considered one of the best players in Japanese baseball history, which, you know, is kind of saying something. I don't know what Bass looked like back then, but I don't see a ton of resemblance to Colonel Sanders looking on the Google today. I mean, Bass is Caucasian. He has a beard. That, that's about it. So anyway, apparently the original plan, so much as there was a plan, was to celebrate with the Colonel slash Bass impersonator. And just enjoy the night. And this may shock you a touch, but things got a little out of hand. And the crowd sort of tossed the statue into a river. Yeah. Now, in fairness, what was really going down is that for whatever reason, the fans decided as part of their celebration to yell a player's name. And then someone who looked like that player would jump in the river. I don't know how exacting their standards were. I'm guessing that it's just more important somebody was willing to jump in the water than, you know, to actually look like the player. But regardless, when they got to Bass, they were a little disappointed because everybody that was celebrating was Asian. There was no Caucasians. So the colonel was volunteered for this job. And he was tossed in the river and sank and suffered a bit of damage, sadly. But, you know, nobody cared at the time because victory and all that. But as the years went by, the, the Tigers couldn't seem to replicate their 1985 success. Like, they instantly fell down to be one of the worst teams in the league. And, you know, baseball is unique in that it likes to create rumors and legends and tales. And so people started saying, maybe the team is cursed. Maybe cursed by none other than the KFC colonel himself. So convincing were these rumors that the hardcore fans actually managed to conduct a successful recovery operation years later of the statue. Okay, that's not exactly true. The fans didn't directly pull the statue down the river. See, it just so happens that the city was making some improvements down on the waterway. And the fans were like, hey, while you're down there, look for, you know, Colonel Sanders. We really need him. And they found him. They actually rescued him. He was found in a few different pieces. He didn't look that great, but uh, they found that his torso, his lower body, and his hands were all separated. I say his like it was a person. It's a freaking plastic statue. Now, the workers down there found the torso and the lower body, and it fit right back together. Then they found the right hand, and it slipped right down in there. But the left hand was never discovered. And the uh, colonel's glasses had, had washed away as well. Though the KFC where the statue was originally borrowed from closed up shop years before, the fans managed to get it to, like, some sort of regional headquarters or something like that where it's now kept in like this private area, only available for high-ranking personnel. 
and special invitees to gaze into the colonel's eyes. But the curse hasn't been lifted. Despite making it to the championship in 2003, 2005, and 2014, the Tigers have yet to secure another championship. And the rumor is that the curse cannot be fully lifted until that left hand and the original glasses are found. And here's a fun little tidbit. When the Tigers made it to the 03 championship, all the nearby KFC stores decided, you know, let's move our Colonel Sanders inside and uh, lock up at night. So uh, in case the Tigers win this thing, we don't have to deal with a similar problem. Now, if you aren't a big sports fan, this is not like a uniquely Japanese thing. It's a baseball thing. Baseball just seems to attract curses, and I don't know why. You know, in the United States, in Major League Baseball, there are certainly several well-known curses that lasted, you know, decades. In fact, two of the most famous ones were only broken this century. Uh, Probably the most famous one is the Curse of the Bambino. It's when the Boston Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees in 1918 to allow the Red Sox owner to finance a new Broadway play. Yeah. Now, what was interesting about this was the Red Sox were kind of a dominant baseball team back then. And the Yankees were kind of an afterthought. But as soon as this trade or sale was made, the Yankees just became the, the, the biggest beast in the sports history, going on to win championship after championship. And the Red Sox just became mediocre. The curse lasted for 86 years. It wasn't until 2004 when the Red Sox reversed the curse by winning the World Series championship. And if you look into the history of Red Sox baseball during this eight-decade stretch, you'll see tales of heartbreak you couldn't imagine when it comes to trying to win a championship. Probably the second most well-known Major League Baseball curse is that of a certain billy goat. The Chicago Cubs forced a patron to leave the stadium during a World Series game in 1945 because his pet goat, which he had brought along to the game, and had regularly brought along to the game, was bothering fans, mainly by attacking them and biting them and things like that. In anger, this fellow claimed the Cubs would never win a championship again. And he was kind of right, at least for 71 years. The curse was finally broken in 2016. Just FYI, that 1945 World Series that the dude was kicked out of, uh, they the Cubs lost that. So the curse like took hold immediately. So, you know, if you're a business owner, maybe don't deny services to someone who's sporting a goat as their date. Just a thought. Um, You know, hopefully someday soon, Tiger fans will find the missing hand and glasses of the Colonel and enjoy victory again, because clearly that's the only way they're going to taste that sweet championship gold. Okay, we're going to move from baseball to academia. I know exactly what you were expecting again, right? So this urban legend claims that the assistant of a well-known but unidentified professor showed up to work one day, you know, shortly before the morning classes began. 
And he straightened up the professor's office, just, you know, did some general busy work until it was time for class and the professor had not yet arrived. There were students sitting in the lecture hall. And so the assistant decided, you know, the professor must have overslept or something. So he called the professor's home, but no one answered. The professor didn't live that far away from campus. So the assistant went to his house. And when he got there, he noticed not only was no one answering the door. And not only did it seem like nobody was in the house, but from what he could tell by peering in the windows, like all the furniture was gone. The professor had just spontaneously moved for no reason. Naturally, the assistant's puzzled, so he returns back to campus, goes into the professor's office, and starts digging around to see if he could figure out what on earth is happening here. And there's nothing, you know, on his desk calendar. There's nothing in any of the books he could find, any of his uh, notepads. You know, nothing's standing out until he starts digging through the professor's drawers. And when he opened up the top drawer of the professor's desk, on top of everything else was a sheet of paper had been folded. And when he opened it up, it was clearly a memo. But it wasn't addressed to anyone specifically. Uh, so the assistant read it, see if it could shed any light on this mystery. And here's what the memo supposedly said. If you are reading this letter, you must leave the Kanto region right now. No. You must get as far away as possible. Don't tell anyone about what you've seen here. If you do, it will cause widespread panic. But whatever you do, you mustn't be in the Kanto region on this day of this month. Upon finishing the memo, the assistant hurriedly grabbed his things and took the memo with him. He fled the region as quickly as he could. Because you see... This professor just happened to be the leading authorities in the world on earthquakes and had an amazing track record at predicting when they would occur. Now, as you will notice, there's no name associated with this legend. There's no university named. It's one of those nebulous rumors that has lasted in Japan for decades because I think in part the threat of earthquakes is one of those underlying fears the citizenry always has in the back of their mind. And, you know, a, a massive earthquake can do massive damage to an island country such as Japan. Remember that, uh, what was it, the Tohoku earthquake back in 2011? That was, you know, a massive earthquake, and it caused thousands of deaths. It damaged a bunch of nuclear reactors. It created just this disaster for the country, right? Thing about that one was the epicenter was about 45 miles or 72 kilometers out to sea. This urban legend existed long before this terrifying earthquake hit Japan. But it no doubt continues to swirl through the rumor mill because this is such a background item of concern that the people of Japan have to worry about. Okay, I'll give into peer pressure at this moment. I know you clicked on this thinking, oh, Brad's going to read us some spooky, scary urban legends. So here's a campfire quality one. It involves the mysterious Sugisawa village. Oh, and if I haven't said it yet, uh, I'm just butchering the crap out of all these names, and I apologize. 
it's a race to get this episode recorded, like I said earlier. So y'all are just going to have to bear with this old country boy, okay? So deep in the mountains of the Aomori Prefecture is an old abandoned village. The Sugiswawa village. <laughs> that can't be right. I don't know what I'm doing. Now, the circumstances by which it became an abandoned village are a bit, I don't know, ghastly. Apparently, one night, many, many years ago, a resident of the village kind of went crazy and spent the night walking from house to house, brutally killing all the men and women and children in their sleep. By the time dawn came, he had managed to succeed in killing every person residing in the village. He sat down in the street, watched the sunrise, and then killed himself. Because everyone was dead, there was no one really to alert the authorities. And it wasn't until some kind of random hikers passed by the village that they saw this horrific scene. When the authorities got there, they were shocked at what they found. I mean, the wooden floors of the homes were just soaked in deep red blood stains. And, you know, you had blood painted on the walls, the uh, splattered on the ceiling, covering the furniture. It was just everywhere. Even some of the outside of the houses were awash in blood. You know, not really knowing what to do, the authorities decided they would do what most governments do when presented with a problem like this. They were just going to cover it up. So, you know, the Sugisawa village is just so remote. This proved to be actually a pretty easy endeavor. They deleted the village off of official maps. It was erased from any official census or other government documents. And the signs that kind of pointed you towards the village were removed. The bodies were taken away, but nobody really knows where they were buried or even ended up. The village was left standing, and it apparently still stands to this day. But one would have to be a pretty hardy adventurer to find it, because there's no direct roads leading to the village anymore. Apparently, one has to take a popular hiking trail that leads up into the nearby mountains, and at a very precise point, jump off the trail and head straight in a certain direction to find the village. Now, for those who have allegedly found it, and you can find lots of people on YouTube and Reddit and all that who claim to have found it, they claim that before you really reach the village, like on the true outskirts, there are signs posted by the government warning that entrance into the village is very dangerous and is strongly discouraged. When one gets to the village, it's got walls around it, and so there's a front gate you come through. And that gate boasts this really impressive-looking shrine that oddly is blood-red in color and features a skull sitting at the base of the shrine. We don't know if it was like that before or if somebody decided to make this place a little bit more horrifying. No clue on that. Now, for those that have actually explored the village... They claim there's not a whole lot to see there. Just a bunch of abandoned houses. You know, if you, you can see the dried blood in some of them, but really it's it's just a ghost town. 
a few claim to have found evil spirits lurking in the village's remains, seeking vengeance for what was done to their bodies on that fateful night. So this legend became a thing during the 1990s and originally claimed the murder spree took place in the 1920s or 30s. Somehow it just spread like wildfire throughout Japan and caught the country's imagination, such that like a television specials were launched where people would go out and try to find this village, and not one of them were successful. Uh, one even went so far as to conclude that the village has to exist in some sort of like pocket dimension, I guess you'd say, and you can really only find it if you're at the right place at the right time, you know, kind of under the right circumstances. Now, this story actually isn't one of pure fiction. It's just the location is wrong. There was a situation similar to this that did occur in 1938. Um, A small village known as Kosugi had a young man living there named Motsu Tayo, and he was dying from tuberculosis, which apparently at that time was kind of a stigma in Japan. And so no one would offer him aid. No one would, you know, offer him any meals or cook for him. Or He was kind of a leper in the society, right? He was just totally, like, they tolerated him living there, and that was it. And, you know, he was a young man. He didn't know how to handle this. He was stressed out. And so one night, he just something caused him to reach his breaking point. And he got some weapons together and started sneaking into houses. And he ended up killing about 30 residents or just about half of the village with either a shotgun, an axe, or a katana. Then at dawn, he took his own life. He had a suicide note tucked into a pocket. And that note claimed that he just had to get revenge for all those who had been cruel to him before he died. And that he wanted to go out on his own terms, not on tuberculosis terms. So this apparently is recorded fact, but this village is a long ways away from where the Shugiswawa village is rumored to be. Um, You know, there's also other rumors that surround this village that it's, you know, it's really not a village. It's this uh, secret military facility where questionable experiments are conducted. Some even claim that it really was like an outpost for the Knights Templar. And a few are even bold enough to claim that If you go there and look, you can find the grave with the remains of Jesus's earthly body. I mean, who would have guessed to look in Japan? But anyway, there's like I mentioned earlier, there's lots and lots of Internet stories about people finding the Suwagiswa village. Most are clearly, you know, the creepypasta variety. The scariest one that I saw claimed that a couple of friends managed to drive there. Their car stalled out once they got to the village. So they decided to explore. They heard moaning. They had the sense they were being watched. They finally decided we need to get. They get in their car. It still won't start. And as they're in their car, these bloody handprints start appearing on the windshield and on the hood and everywhere before the car finally started working. 
good, nice little scary story, except for the fact that I don't know how you get a car into such a densely wooded area to find this village. So you're going to see a lot of things like that, where good story doesn't make sense. This, uh, this legend is very well known throughout Japan, and the village has been made the subject of movies, television shows, mangas, even uh, mobile games. You have to play to try to escape the village, I think is the, the constant theme. Right, I'm going to guess you guys want another campfire quality story. You don't like stories of lost professors or sports curses? Fine. Here's one with a creepy doll. So a family was packing to move to a new neighborhood. And they weren't a bit in a rush packing as the move was required by the father's new job. But they really only had like one weekend to get everything taken care of. Fortunately, they had a house or an apartment waiting for them. I'm sorry, it wasn't an apartment waiting for them in their new city. But, you know, they had about 48 hours to get packed and get up there. In the haste of sorting through everything, their daughter's favorite doll, named Mary, was accidentally placed in a pile of things to be tossed out. And this mistake wasn't realized until they had finished unpacking at their new home. Of course, the little girl's just beside herself. She's despondent. Her parents try to do what they can to calm her down. They even buy her a new dolly, which, you know, she begrudgingly accepted, but it wasn't Mary. But, you know, time heals all wounds, especially with kids. And the little girl grew up and forgot about her old friend, Mary. So years later, one night, the girl's at home. She's not so little anymore. uh, Home alone while her parents are out. And the phone rang. She answered it, expecting it to be her mother or her father. Uh, But no one responded. And so she, you know, said hello a couple more times. So finally, this tiny voice responded. Hello, it's Mary's son. You left me in the rubbish. I'm doing voices now. Uh, The girl slammed down the phone, being freaked out, but quickly chalked it up to just a prank phone call. Nothing big. So about a week goes by, girl's home alone again, phone rings again. She answers it, and again is initially met with silence. She was about to hang up, thinking it's the prank caller again, when she heard the little voice. It's Mary's son. I'm at the local train station. Again, the girl hung up. She knew it was probably a prank, but it was a little creepy, you know? It didn't... It bothered her that this train station really wasn't that far from where they were living now. You know, somebody knew her doll's name. No, it's, it's a weird situation, right? Okay, a couple days go by. Guess what happens? Girl's home alone after school. And the phone rang. This time when she went to answer, her pulse was kind of racing. And she, you know, she picks up and she goes, Mama, is that you? And the voice on the other line was again the small, feminine voice she had heard twice before. No, this is Marisan. I met, and she named the name of some grocery store that was like a block away from the girl's apartment. Prank or not, the girl was now scared. You know, somebody was messing with her, and it's clear they knew exactly where she lived, and they knew something about her past. So that wasn't cool. 
So she's freaked out. She doesn't know what to do, but what can you do in this situation, right? A mere few hours later, while still home alone, the phone rang again. The girl didn't want to answer it, but she forced herself to. This time she just picked up the receiver and didn't say a word. The small voice did all the talking. This is Madison. I'm in front of your apartment building. Well, at this, the girl began to panic, as I think we all would. She locked her front door then looked outside. There was nothing that she could see but shadows from the streetlights. She went to the kitchen phone, which was the only landline the family had. She ripped the phone out of the wall and ran upstairs to her bedroom. She closed the curtains. She locked her door. She sat down on the floor and she just sobbed. You know, this was something that just could not be happening. She couldn't wrap her mind around it. Who on earth would be pretending to be her long-lost doll? And, and why? As she was trying to puzzle out a solution or an explanation... The phone rang again. Yeah, that landline, the one that she had ripped out of the wall, it somehow managed to ring without being connected to anything. She stared at it for several moments, again, just not being able to comprehend what was happening, knowing that what she was witnessing was impossible. But still, she slowly answered the phone, trying to muster all the courage she had in her body. She said, listen, I don't know who this is, but you better stop before. And she was cut off. This is Madison. I'm right behind you now. And that is where the tale traditionally ends. Leaving it to the listener to imagine the fate of this poor girl. Which I think is a really effective way to end the story. You know, if I was telling this around a campfire, that's how I would do it. But of course... People take liberties with the story, and there are many, many, many different endings that have been tacked on. Most involve the doll killing the girl, usually ending with a dire warning that if you don't share the story with three people or five people in the next three or five days, Mary will come for you next. There's also some, though, that tack on a humorous ending, which, which I enjoyed. One has the girl... Wait all night for the doll, but she never finds it. She never sees it. And when she leaves for school the next day, the elevator's out. So her, to her dismay, she's got to take the stairs. Well, that's kind of a big deal because she lives on the 147th floor of this apartment complex. So she takes her, you know, she bounces down the stairs trying to keep a good attitude when she finally sees her old doll, Mary collapsed on the 102nd floor, apparently dead from exhaustion. There's another one I like where, you know, the story goes down the same way, except one crucial detail that's added in is the girl is not sitting in the center of her room sobbing. She's sitting with her back against the wall sobbing. And when she answers the phone call, she freaks out realizes there's a wall behind her and then moments later the phone <laughs> rings again this time it's mary asking for help because she's trapped in the wall and can't move so apparently if you ever find yourself being haunted by mary there's a few simple ways you can combat her advances first don't answer the phone simple 
You won't encourage her. She'll die from lack of attention, you know. You can also make sure you keep all the doors and windows locked. She can't enter if everything's locked, supposedly. You can also make a habit of sitting with your back, touching a wall whenever you answer the phone. I like that. You can also refuse to turn around if Mary declares that she's right behind you. I don't know what good that does, but according to the legends, that works. Or if you're really quick like a cat, you can try to get behind Mary, which will confuse her and she won't know what to do. Now, Mary doesn't seem to be the sharpest killer doll. So I don't think you have much to fear for her, in my humble opinion. But I'm passing along the story to all of you. So that way, I don't run the risk of her coming after me. Because I'm certainly telling this to more than three people. Now, as to why the doll is named Mary, I saw some online reports that it was either because the doll was actually a European doll, and so the girl decided to give it, you know, more of an Anglo-Saxon name. Uh, an alternative explanation for this is that this is supposed to be kind of the Japanese version of Bloody Mary, and the creator of the tale stuck with the name Mary. But in all honesty, who knows? All right, well, I know after that chilling tale, your heart needs a bit of a rest. So we're going to switch back to a more tame urban legend, okay? This one involves the classic literary series, Where's Waldo? Apparently, in Japan, it's known as Where's Wally? And I think that may have been the original name of the book, and it was just changed in the United States to Where's Waldo? Regardless, we all know these books, right? You've got to look through these pages to find this goofy-looking guy in a red and white striped sweater as he attempts to hide in a sea of people. Good, clean, fun, nothing evil here, right? No, not in Japan. So, in Japan, they believe that Wally is actually based on a serial killer from England by the name of Jim Jack, which is a very unfortunate name, but it's also fun to say. Jim Jack. Jim Jack. So, uh, Jim Jack wasn't just a serial killer. He was a serial killer of young boys. When he was arrested, it was crystal clear to all that he was way not mentally stable. So when he went before the court, they said, you know what? We're going to put you in a nice mental hospital facility until you could be cured. Which, according to all the experts that interviewed him before this court hearing, would likely be never. However, after just a few years, Jim Jack managed to escape. Despite a very exhaustive but very quiet search, British authorities couldn't find him, and they reached the conclusion that he must have left England. And they were in a bit of a panic because, you know, they don't want to admit that they lost a dude this evil. But they also felt like, you know, we got to warn the public some way. Well, it turns out one of the higher-ups in the British police was close friends with a publisher. And together, they created these, this uh, Where's Wally set of books. The idea being that it would train the population to be on the lookout for Jim Jack without them having to say, be on the lookout for Jim Jack. Jim Jack was apparently, you know, tall and thin, just like our buddy 
Wally slash Waldo. He wore the, you know, goofy round glasses that Wally would wear. And that iconic red and white sweater, that was a take on the uniforms that psychiatric patients had to wear. Instead of, you know, like the classic black and white stripes for inmates that we all know from TV and movies, mental patients in England who were being held for criminal acts had to wear red and white stripes instead of black and white stripes, just like Wally. Of course, none of this is true. England has never required anybody in a mental facility, regardless of the reason for them being in there, to wear a red and white suit. There is not a serial killer by the name of Jim Jack, which is so disappointing because I love that name and that was going to be our next episode. The books were not created to condition the British to be on the lookout for escaped mental patients. It's 100% fiction. A good story, though. But I mean, who would just let a child killer, you know, leave a mental facility without a way to keep tabs on them? You know, like... Would like a country like Colombia do that? Certainly not. That that's a throwback to last week's episode. If if you're not listening to these in order. Okay, all right, all right. Back to the campfire ones you love and adore so much. This is a story of the most terrifying piece of office equipment ever known to mankind. The photocopier. So. Our legend tells the story that if you're in Japan and you're way out in the middle of nowhere, you may discover this tiny town. And it's so small, there's, you know, no chain stores there. It's just a bunch of little mom and pop joints. And recently you'll notice an out-of-business liquor store was remodeled into this kind of crude convenience store. One of the services it offered for nearby residents was copies. Now, not color copies, okay? We're not, we're not living in luxury here. Just black and white ones, and in all honesty, the quality was kind of iffy. But this particular copier has this strange aura to it, and it caused rumors to swirl throughout the small town. Apparently... If you were foolish enough to copy a picture of yourself, it would show your face to you at the moment of your death. So one day, a couple of young men came through the town on a road trip. They just happened to stop at this town, and they just happened to visit this convenience store, right? Which in and of itself is weird because the place is like way in the middle of nowhere. But that's what the story says. Who am I to question the story, okay? While in the store, an elderly woman recognizes that these young men aren't from around here, and she grows concerned, and so she approaches them, and she says, Look, y'all need to be careful around here. There's things you don't understand, but just know this. Stay away from that copier. She told them kind of the whole legend behind it, and she made them promise to stay away, which they did. Boys being boys, that promise lasted until the woman left the store. Immediately, the two young men dashed over to the copier and argued about who would go first. Eventually, the dispute was settled, and one of the boys, 
not having a picture of himself to copy, just placed his face on the glass and let the copier work its magic. Now, of course, he's going to try to make his buddy laugh. So he really kind of squinches his face on there and he's got a goofy grin on and all that. And, you know, he hit the copy button and, and it makes this weird noise. You know, it's like a goronk, goronk, goronk. But, you know, it's an old piece of junk, so they weren't really shook by it in any sense of the word. Finally, Pitts out, spits out a piece of paper. The two young men kind of grab it in unison. Unis- Why is my ability to talk leaving me? The two men grab it in unison. And they were instantly disappointed because it was just a regular copy of the man's face. His eyes closed, goofy smile, flattened face. They were disappointed, to say the least. But, you know, they also kind of laughed it off. It's a good story to tell when they get home, right? They Whatever treats and goodies they got, they went and paid for. And the cashier, cashier kind of looked at them as it, like they were playing with fire. He barely spoke to them. I mean, now the young man just assumed that he's not used to outsiders. He doesn't know who we are. Who cares? So they run outside to get back in their car when they hear this loud screech, followed by a huge crash. The young men were caught in a car accident before they even got to their car. Someone had lost control of their vehicle and plowed straight into theirs at a pretty high rate of speed. The man who was driving kind of got tossed from the scene, but he was largely unhurt. The other young man wasn't as lucky. He apparently had fallen down while trying to escape and got crushed between the two cars. When the car that caused the accident backed up, the young man could get a clear look at his now deceased friend and his face was squished flat, his eyes closed, And he had an odd, goofy smile, just like in the copy they got. So in Japan, apparently there's many stories and legends surrounding the Shinigayo, or the face of death. And this is one of the more popular tales about it. Now, of course, not a word of the story is known to be true. Apparently, this particular story can be traced to a collection of short horror stories and is credited to an author by the name of Orasian. I promised you seven um, urban legends. You've had six. So we're going to end our journey now by going into the world of Japanese urban legends with one of the most well-known urban legends in the country perhaps even worldwide, Hanako-san of the Toilets. Yes, yes, that's the real name. Very short story, but lots of background to it. If you want to encounter this ghost, monster, spirit, whatever you want to call it, you need to make your way to a Japanese school. Specifically, you got to find a bathroom. There's different rules depending on what legends you hear. Some say... It's got to be a third-story bathroom, but we'll keep it simple. Go to an ele- go to a Japanese school and shack up in one of the bathrooms, okay? Now, after you're placed on the sex offender watch list, you need to go to the third stall from the end and knock three times. 
Then you need to say loudly, is Hanako-san there? Hanako-san, Hanako-san, please come out. You should then receive an answer to your question of sorts, meaning it's now time to open the stall door. And when you do, you'll be greeted by a girl with like a bob haircut, wearing a red skirt, and she will drag you with her into the toilet, making you disappear in death. So this short little story has been a staple of Japanese schools since at least the 1950s. It really kind of gained legs in the 80s and led to a bunch of horror movies and TV shows and anime and manga, all about this legend, right? Now, some scholars have traced the legend back pretty far to at least the 1920s, but a lot would say probably sometime in the 1800s. Because during this time frame, there was a religion dedicated to a goddess known as Kawayagami. She was, and I swear to you, I'm not making this up. She was the god of toilets. She was depicted as an older woman who was blind and without hands. Now, just to make this a little less sensational, her jurisdiction was not limited just to, you know, the porcelain throne. She ruled over the bathroom in total, which in Japan apparently is a very important part of the house as it's historically connected with childbirth and pregnancy, you know, because babies were usually birthed in the bathtub before hospitals were like a thing, you know. So culturally, it's very important to have a nice bathroom and families will often put fresh flowers in there and lots of just kind of pretty cute things um, like little dolls and whatnot. The colors red and white are considered very important in Japan. I mean, look at their flag. And so these colors are often incorporated into the bathroom decor and design. It also just so happens that Hanako is a popular name in Japan that translates into flower girl. So, you know, we have a little girl who looks like a doll wearing the all-important red and being named after flowers. You do see some parallels that tie this story to that religion. Um, I don't know how far I can go in analyzing a toilet religion, but we can at least make those connections. Now, why would Hanako-san want to kill? There's there's as many thoughts on this as you can count. Some of the more popular ones, she was physically abused by her father. That's why she had the bob haircut, because it would hide her wounds and her scars. School was the only place she ever felt safe because he wasn't there. But eventually she was killed at the hands of her father. And so it said that her spirit went to this safe place. Another popular theory is she was a child who lived during World War II. She and her friends were playing hide-and-seek one day after school, and she decided to hide in one of the bathroom stalls. While there, the area was kind of carpet-bombed, and she was one of many casualties. She died in that stall. We've also got a story that a pervert was stalking children at a school and caught Hanako in the bathroom alone, she was later found dead in the third from last stall, having been drowned in the toilet after being abused. 
And one of the most popular origin stories, maybe the most popular one, is that Hannibal was being chased by her mentally ill mother from the house, and she fled into the school. In an effort to try to hide from her mom, she darted into one of the bathroom stalls, but she was eventually found by her mother and murdered there. Now, the full scope of this tale, you know, typically involves a situation where the husband's cheating, the wife finds out, she goes crazy, and she kills, decides to kill her kids. She gets them all, but Hanako, who's able to escape the house before eventually meeting death in the bathroom. Because this legend is so well-known throughout Japan, each region kind of puts their own spin on it, too. And so in Shimani, for example, Hanoko will just want to play. And if you refuse to play with her, that's when you face the deadly swirly. In Tokyo, if you try to summon her after 4 p.m., when you get a response from behind the door indicating that she's there, you can escape the situation by saying, Hanako son, I'm sorry, it is after four. And then she'll respond with, It's okay! And disappear. Now, if you do this ritual and summon the child, regardless of which version you have, and all, you know, this is going with the vanilla story, okay? There's only three ways you can escape her disgusting wrath. One, you can show her a perfect score on a recent test. She will allegedly become so jealous of your academic prowess, she will vanish in a fit of anger. So keep us a good test on you. It's got to be a hundred. All right, number two, your second option, you can kind of assault her by throwing handfuls of blank math drills with her name written on top. She'll get so scared of the extra homework, she will flee. So if you don't have 100 on any tests, then start copying some math worksheets and write her name on it and keep them in your back pocket, I guess. Finally, you can just apologize. The idea being that she gets bothered all the time, that to take the time to apologize in a sincere way is considered very thoughtful to her. And so she won't attack anyone who's so considerate. So that's an out for someone, you know, who doesn't have good grades and can't be bothered to carry around fake math worksheets. So uh, not, not much room for legal analysis here, huh? Just some classic legends offered for entertainment purposes. I'll again put in a plug for Tara Delvin's work. Go check it out if you dug this episode. She does a good job. I do look forward to reading more of her work. And in case you're curious, I don't know Tara. I've never spoken to her. I'm certainly not getting any kickbacks for pimping her books. I just enjoyed them. I thought maybe you would too. Stop being so cynical, okay? All right, let's get on to that palate cleanser now. Now, dramatic shift here. I am not offering one from Mr. Eli our curator of jokes. Instead, I am taking one from Tara's book because somehow jokes become urban legends. Here we go. It's going to be a ride. Hang on. The several students took a summer vacation to celebrate having survived another year of college. They decided to go to Singapore. 
They book a room in this brand new and extremely fancy hotel that's just been built. And it's huge. It's like way over 100 stories tall. Excuse me. When they arrive, it's late in the day. But, you know, they want to go out. They want to see the nightlife. They didn't come here to sleep. So they check in at the front desk. The clerk makes arrangements to take their luggage up to their room. And they ask for some some suggestions on where they should go. And the clerk gives them some. But he says, look, you guys got to return before midnight. It's really, really important that you're back before midnight. Not because anything bad's going to happen. It's the elevators are undergoing maintenance at midnight. And so your room's on the 101st floor. We don't want you to take the stairs. So please just come back a little bit early. They'll be running again at 6 a.m. Group goes out, enjoys the nightlife, lives a little too hard, and arrives back at the hotel at 1.30 a.m. Meaning they now have to take the stairs up over 100 floors in their extremely inebriated condition. They, of course, complain about their situation, but there's nothing that can be done, and there's no one to blame. It's their fault, right? So they just start climbing. And after about 15 floors, they are whooped. They are suffering from jet lag. They've got all this alcohol in their system. They don't know how they're going to make it. But one of the members of the group says, look, let's take turns telling stories especially scary stories. Let's take turns telling scary stories. That'll help pass the time. They kind of all agree, but you know, in the way that like a third grader will agree when they know they don't really have a choice to do what they want to do. But to their amazement, it kind of works. And in what feels like only minutes, they're at the 50th floor. They're halfway home, right? So they keep going and they keep trying to tell stories that top the last one they heard. And when they reach the 100th floor, they have a mini celebration, knowing they're just one floor away. The kind of de facto leader of the group sighs and says, listen, we've we've heard a lot of scary stories tonight. But I've got one that will top them all if you're prepared. I've saved it for last. You know, the other members of the group kind of look at each other and then they lean forward in anticipation, you know, nodding their heads. That, yeah, we, we want to hear it. So the leader leans in close, real close. And he says, my tale is the worst of all because it's a true story about how we forgot to pick up the room keys from the front desk. A little longer one than normal, but a fun one nonetheless. It's apparently a well-known joke in Japan. I don't know why it was in the urban legends book i'm glad it was because i enjoyed it and i got to share it with you so i'm out of things to ramble on about i hope you enjoyed this episode and i hope you don't see all the duct tape and string it took to put it together i'll be back next week hopefully not coming off a week of non-stop adulting action until then i hope you all have a wonderful week of fun and with that i will say Right out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.